All right. Well, good morning, everybody. If I haven't introduced myself, my name is Josh. I'm the preaching minister here at uh, Alliance Christian Church. And I'm excited because we get to jump into a new series. We're going to do a four-week series through the book of week in a series that I've entitled uh, Finding Hope in Hopeless Situations. Uh, what we're going to notice as we go through the book of Ruth is that we're going to be finding little elements of hope that God has placed every single week. So uh, I'm going to do a bad thing. You're supposed to, when you preach a sermon, you're supposed to do this big build up and then give the bam, take home message at the end. It makes it really impactful. I'm going to break the rules and I'm going to tell you for the next four weeks, the big take home message is there is hope. Um, I think that's such good news that I want to give it to you right up front. So if you know nothing else, you can, you can go home for the next four weeks and know there is hope. But if you want to know more, let's look through the book of Ruth and, and find where God gives us hope. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the hope that you give us. You give us hope in light times and in dark times, in pain and joy. You give us hope when we feel like there's no hope for us to find. Father, I ask humbly as we study your word, you would soften our hearts and, and allow us to receive your word, to receive the message of hope that you have for us. Father, I ask that you would be with me as, as I handle your word, that you would help me to handle it faithfully and true. And Father, we thank you for your written word. We thank you for this church. And most of all, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ and his body, and his blood that was broken and shed for us. And it's in his almighty, precious name that we pray. And the church said, amen. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Judah. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, Judah excuse me, went to live as a resident foreigner in the region of Moab, along with his wife, and two sons during the time of the judges. So right off the bat, as we're reading this, this account, we need to understand that if we, have, if we want to understand Ruth, we have to kind of understand the book of Judges. But then as you read through the book of Judges, you realize if you want to understand Judges, you kind of have to understand what hope happens in Joshua, and you kind of have to understand what happens in Deuteronomy and and. Numbers and Leviticus and Exodus and Genesis all the way back. So, because the Bible is one unified story, I'm going to give you the super quick 30,000 foot airplane view of, of all of the Bible leading up to where we are here during the time of the judges. So, God creates the world, He creates this perfect world. Adam and Eve rebel, sin enters the world, God kicks them out of paradise. Um, eventually their descendants become utterly and completely wicked. God hits the reset button, wipes everything out. He makes this covenant with Noah. I'm never going to destroy the world again. This is going to be it. Um, with a flood, he says, with, you know, we're going to restart and everything's going to be good. Well, within one generation of Noah, they all go astray. All right? It doesn't work out for very long out of Noah's descendants, God randomly, seemingly, picks one guy named Abram and says, You, I'm going to redeem the world through you. I'm going to make a covenant through you and your descendants. So Abraham has these kids, and, and their descendants end up in Egypt under these crazy circumstances. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're crying out to God, and God miraculously 
defeats the Egyptians and leads them out. And he tells them, okay, now we are, we are initiating Operation Redemption starting today. He says, I'm going to pull you out. You're going to be my special people. Set aside. You're going to cooperate. You're going to follow my instructions. And you're going to be set apart for my purposes. He leads them around in the desert. He shows them what it looks like to be God's people. And within like 30 seconds, they're like, yeah, yeah, God, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And then they forget. Like, like, like that, like within a page turn. So God, you know, they, they forget this covenant. And so God says, okay, we're going to raise up a new generation. They wander around in the desert for, for 40 years. And, and towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God's about to initiate phase two of Operation Redemption, where he says, okay, I'm going to lead you into the land. And so as we get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in, in chapter 28, there's this covenant renewal, like we did with, with, with communion, where, where Moses is, is renewing the covenant, renewing the law, and explaining to the people, this is what it looks like to be God's people. He basically says, if you do what God says, it's going to be good, and he's going to bless you. And if you disobey God, it's going to be bad, and he's going to curse you. So in, in chapter 28, I want to read uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. It says, if, if you indeed in obey the Lord, your God, and are careful to observe all his commandments I'm giving you today, the Lord, your God, will elevate you above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come to you in abundance if you obey the Lord, your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the field. Your children will be blessed as well as the produce of your soil, the offspring of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your mixing bowl will be blessed. You will bless when you come in. You will be blessed when you go out. And he goes on like this, right? Here's a blessing here, blessing here, blessing, blessing everywhere, if you obey the Lord. When we skip down to verse 15, you get the other side of that coin. God tells the people in chapter 28, verse 15, but... If you ignore the Lord your God and are not careful to keep all his commandments and statutes I'm giving you today, then all of these curses will come upon you in full force. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the field. Your basket and your mixing bowl will be cursed. Your children will be cursed as well as the produce of your soil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you go in and you're cursed when you go out. Notice how these two, this blessing and cursing section are almost identically mirror parallels of each other. And, and, and God goes on for a little bit more describing these blessings and curses, but the short of it is, obey God good, disobey God bad. We got it? Okay. So God leads the people into the land. He is the book of Joshua. Moses died. Uh, God raises up Joshua. And Joshua is a really fun book to read if you're, if you're into like, military tactics and battles, and you like to read Tom Clancy books, Joshua is the book for you, right? I typically say Joshua is a book for guys. It's like, oh, and then they had this battle, and they went here, and you can trace it on the map. Um, if you're the empathetic type, if you're like my wife, Joshua can be a really tough one. Um, if you're more into the, the sort of, you know, interpersonal relationships, and, well, there's some tough stuff in, in the book of Joshua, but either way, the gist of the book of Joshua is they go in, they conquer all the enemies, they get the land, they split it off into these different tribes, and everyone says, okay, now phase two of Operation Redemption is complete. We're going to live in the land. So, so God says, I've made good on my end of the bargain so far. 
I've given you these blessings. And in the end of chapter 4, we get another covenant renewal, this time by Joshua. But Joshua in Joshua chapter 4, he basically says, okay, are you going to keep the deal that we had in Deuteronomy and the deal that we talked about in Numbers and the deal we talked about in Exodus uh, and, and the deal that we talked about all throughout? And so if you get to Joshua 24, verse 16, their response is, 24, 16, the people responded, far be it from us to abandon the Lord so we can worship other gods. For the Lord our God took us and our fathers out of slavery in the land of Egypt and performed these awesome miracles before our eyes. He continually protected us as we traveled and when we passed through the nations. The Lord drove out from before all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. So we too will worship the Lord, for he is our God. Joshua warned the people, You will not keep worshiping the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God who will not forgive your rebellion of your sins. You get to verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, we really will worship the Lord. Joshua said to the people, do you agree to be witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to worship the Lord? They replied, we are witnesses. Joshua said, now put aside the foreign gods that are among you and submit to the Lord God of Israel. Verse 24, the people said to Joshua, we will worship the Lord our God and obey him. I read that whole passage because... Three times. They're like, we're going to obey. And Joshua's like, are you sure about that? Yes, we're going to obey. And he's like, are you sure about that? Yes, we will worship the Lord. And in my Bible, Joshua's on this page and Judges is right here. Okay? And the first chapter of Judges really doesn't count because it's really just a recap of what happened here. So I want to show you how far into this book it takes for them to break that promise. I don't know if you can see from here, I put little highlights everywhere in the book of Judges where the people of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord, where they worship other gods, they make deals with other nations, and they sacrifice to other gods. And it's like, if you can see it, I don't know if you can, it's like every single page, the... The Israelites prostituted themselves and worshipped an ephod. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So he handed them over to the Philistines. The, let's see here. This, this book is a train wreck. And it was like one page over. And we turn the page to Ruth. That's what's going on here. So when the Bible says during the time of the judges, that's what you have in your mind. It says there was a famine in the land of Judah. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to live as a resident foreigner in, in the region of Moab along with his wife and two sons. And I want to I point out a couple of things in the text here. Number one, Ruth the book of Ruth doesn't actually really tell us why exactly the famine happened. According to just, if you only read the book of Ruth, it just kind of happened. That's all the text says. A famine happened in the land. There was a famine. We really don't know where in the book of Judges Ruth take, takes place. It just says during the time of the Judges. Well, let's put that in perspective. 
The time of the judges was about a 400-year period. So imagine I'm going to tell you a story and I say, sometime in between today and when the pilgrims came and landed on Plymouth Rock, this thing happened. That doesn't really narrow it down for us, does it? The author of Ruth doesn't really seem to even care about the specifics of when it happened, how it happened, why it happened. All he says is there, there was a famine in the land. Move on so we can get to the real meat of the story. He says in verse 2, Now the man's name was Elimelech, his wife was Naomi, and his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were of the clan of Ephrath from Bethlehem in Judea. They entered the region of Moab and settled there. It says, sometime later, you might not be able to read that. Oh, that's way too small. Sorry, guys. Um, sometime later, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, so she and her two sons were left alone. Both her sons married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth, and they continued to live there about 10 years. Then Naomi's two sons, Machlon and Kilion, also died. So the woman was left all alone, bereaved of her two children as well as her husband. And I want you to notice all throughout this setup is, is the way it's being described as things just happen. A famine happened. Elimelech died. That's just something that happened to him. There's no comment about, well, he was punished or this famine happened because a, a bad thing happened or, you know, the two sons were being punished for marrying Moabite women. We kind of have to infer that. And it's a good chance that, you know why the famine happened? Well, read the book of Judges, and God was probably offering divine punishment on his people. You know why Elimelech died? Well, probably because he did not display faith in God, and he left. You know why the two sons died? Well, the Bible talks a lot about how don't marry these foreign women because they're going to lead you astray toward other gods. That's probably why it happened. Maybe. The text just says it happened. And I think the reason the text describes this as just happening is because Elimelech and Machlon and Kilion are not the main focus of the story. Ruth is the main focus of the story. Naomi is the main focus of the story. So even if we make the case that all of this was divine punishment, God said, this is a punishment toward you, we have to kind of ask, well, what did Naomi do wrong? What did Ruth do wrong? And so Ruth is framed up this way because from Naomi's point of view, from her lenses, from Ruth's point of view, they're not being punished for anything. This is stuff that is happening to them. Because we live in a world that is filled with sin. There's 8 billion people on the planet right now. And the facts of life are, we experience the consequences of our own sin, yes, but time after time after time, we also experience the consequences of the other 8 billion people in the world's sin as well. That's part of the mess that Adam and Eve brought into the world. When a, when a 16-year-old 
is on the road and gets hit by a drunk driver, she is experiencing the consequences of his sin. Her parents experience the consequences of his sin. The paramedics who show up onto the scene are experiencing the consequences of his sin. That's a fact. So how do we reconcile that? That's something we can struggle with. How do we, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where we only had to deal with our own problems? But we don't. We're all on this planet together and my sin affects you and your sin affects her and her sin affects him. That's how it works. So to a certain extent, yes, there are things in this world that are bad and evil that just happen to us because of the mess and the yuck that we live in. And Naomi is getting the brunt of that. She goes to this region because she had to leave her home. There's a famine. There's no food to eat. She had to pack up her stuff and leave to some foreign land. And then her husband dies. Her sons, they marry these women in Moab. And then they die. And so now Naomi's just kind of stuck. She's lost the, the anchor, the hope that was holding her together. No home, no husband, no children, no food, no Hope. And as you get into verse 6, we start to see this little glimmer of hope in the story. Verse 6 says, So she decided to return home from the region of Moab, accompanied by her daughters-in-law, because while she was living in Moab, she had heard that the Lord had shown concern for his people, reversing the famine by providing abundant crops. This is the first point in the account so far where an action is not something just happened. All the way through, this just happened. It just happened. And now in verse 6, God does something. He, he showed concern for his people here. The Hebrew word, it literally means to notice or to observe. It's... It's the same word you would use if you're a general and you've got your troops and you're about to go into battle and you've got to line them up to examine them to make sure they've got all of their gear, all of their weapons. Right? We, I mean, we still do that in the, it's called an in-ranks inspection where your formation is here and your platoon sergeant comes and he checks you up and down, make sure your boots are on right and you've got all your gear and your Kevlar and your, everything's squared away. That's the word that's being used here. God observed, he noticed, he paid attention to the people. So the word is, it's, it's a word that it, it gives the idea of an extreme attention to detail. God noticed. He was paying attention to his people, and so he acted. He provided food for them. In verse, excuse me, in verse 7, He says, now, as she and her two daughters-in-law began to leave the place where she had been living to return to the land of Judah, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, listen to me, each of you should return to your mother's home. May the Lord show you the same kind of devotion that you have shown to your deceased husbands and to me. 
May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the home of a new husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they left wildly. But they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi replied, go back to your home, my daughters. There's no reason for you to return to Judah with me. I'm no longer capable of giving birth to sons who might become your husbands. So what Naomi's doing is she's in this hopeless situation and she's basically look around, looking around and saying, look, girls, I'm old. I'm past hope. I'm past saving. I don't want to drag you along with me. Go home. Find a good husband, someone who can provide for you, someone who can give you children, someone who can take care of you. You don't want to come back with, with an old widow who can't give birth, who can't, you know, I, I can't take care of you. One of the things that you have to understand in, in, in the ancient world is that, is that property and inheritance and everything that you need to survive was entirely based on family lineage. That's just the way it worked. And so it's not like our country today where, you know, you can come to this country with the, the clothes on your back and, and a good work ethic and you can just make a name for yourself. That's, that's, that's not the way their culture worked. If you didn't have a plot of land or food or anything that came directly from a lineage, you had nothing. And so for these two Moabite women... For Orpah and Ruth, they're going into a foreign country where there's virtually no chance of them getting any, anything. Because the only chance they have is if they can find somebody in the lineage of Naomi to, to, to marry, to, you know, to, to have that inheritance, to be able to provide for them. And Naomi's like, look, in case you haven't noticed, I'm not really a spring chicken. I cannot provide for you husbands. My two boys are already dead. And then she says, even if I could, verse 13, he says, surely you would not want to wait until they were old enough to marry. Surely you would not want to remain unmarried all that time. No, my daughters, you must not return with me. For my intense suffering is too much for you to bear. For the Lord is afflicting me. You guys see the hopelessness here? She's like, even if I could provide you a husband, you're a, what, 22, 23-year-old woman. If I have a kid right now, by the time he's old enough to be married, you're going to be 40, 45, 50, somewhere in there, and then you're not going to be much of a spring chicken either. There's no hope for you in Israel. Go home, marry up. Make a life for yourself because my, my suffering is too much for you to bear. The Lord is afflicting me. Literally, it says, the hand of the Lord is against me. And I think the point that we as the reader are supposed to sort of take away is that I know the book's called Ruth, but Naomi's kind of the central figure here. Naomi's the one that we're supposed to look at and identify with. Say, so, yeah, I've been there. I've been in times where it felt like I had no hope. I've been in times where it felt like God was punishing me for something. What I want to do is, is, is I want to talk about Ruth and her, her commitment to Naomi, but I kind of want to skip ahead to 
um, verse 19 and, and see what happens when they get there. And then I'm going to go back and, and touch on what, what Ruth says. So the short of it is Ruth goes with her. But if you get into verse 19, it says, So the two of them journeyed together until they arrived in Bethlehem. And uh, it says, When they entered Bethlehem, the whole village was excited about their arrival. The women of the village said, Can this be Naomi? But she replied to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the sovereign one has treated me harshly. What we notice in this book is that, uh, as I'm going to talk about on Tuesday night, we're going to really dive into this, but basically everybody's name in this story has a pun or, or a Hebrew meaning that really sheds light on the story. Um, but I want, I want to talk about Naomi's for a minute. Naomi's main name means uh, my joy or my pleasantness. Well, she doesn't feel very pleasant right now. The word Mara means bitter. It's the same word used back in Exodus chapter 15 where the Israelites were in the desert and they came to the waters at Mara, the bitter waters they were unable to drink. And so God had Moses throw a stick in there and he cleansed the water. That's the same word, Mara, bitterness. And so Naomi's saying, I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm not joyful anymore. I'm not happy to be here. I'm bitter. She's bitter with God. She's angry with God. Because as, as easy it is for us to sit here and for me to stand up here in the pulpit and say, well, you know, sometimes bad stuff just happens. When it's happening to us, we get bitter. When we live in this interconnected world and we experience the sins of other people, say, oh, well, I guess that's part of life. Yeah, that's, that's really easy to say until it happens to us. And then when we start to feel the pain and the grief when it's my child who gets hit by the drunk driver all of a sudden just saying well sometimes stuff just happens gosh darn it it does kind of start to feel like the hand of the Lord is against us but I want to go back up I'm going to talk about Ruth because Naomi's basically given up at this point. She's like, just go home. I'm going to go be a, a widow. I'm going to go be homeless. Maybe I can find some grain from some farmers. You guys go home, have a good life. But, but back, in, back in verse 16, Ruth says, Stop urging me to abandon you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I do not keep my promise. Only death will be able to separate me from you. It's another little glimmer of hope. And I think it's interesting that at this point, Ruth may or may not have a direct loyalty to God. I'm not sure where she was on her, whether she worshipped Chemosh, the, the Moabite gods, or whether she was a true believer in God. But all she knew was she was there for Naomi. And she's like, if I, if I need to go become an Israelite and do all the things and worship God and, and live in your land, to become, I'll do it because I love you. So they, they enter Bethlehem. The women say, oh, my pleasantness is here. And she's like, no, I'm bitter. 
Don't even talk to me. Verse 21, Naomi says, I left here full, but the Lord has caused me to return empty-handed. Why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me my pleasantness? Seeing that the Lord has opposed me and the sovereign one has caused me to suffer. So Naomi returned, accompanied by her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, who came back with her from the region of Moab. Now they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So as we think about our theme, finding hope in hopeless situations, I can't think of much more of a hopeless situation than this one. Especially for, for Naomi, this is about as hopeless as you can get. I, I, I mean, she's got, she's got no husband, no sons, no one to take care of her. And in that culture, that was pretty much a death sentence. Uh, the, the, the women's rights and, and, you know, you can become the CEO. Well, this is like 1,400 years B.C. It didn't work that way. So for Naomi, everything's gone. But all throughout this book, there are seeds of hope. Little seeds. If you, there's, if, you, if you ever do any like outdoor like camping or survival, you might have heard, there's called, it's called the 333 rule. Um, the rule of threes. It's this sort of rule of thumb. If you're in a survival situation that says the average person, uh, they can live about three weeks without food, about three days without water, about three hours in harsh conditions without shelter, about three minutes without oxygen. It's sort of this hierarchy that if you're ever in a dangerous situation, you can rely on to know what your priorities are. Okay, first I need to be able to breathe. Then I need to be able to get shelter. Then I need water. Food is lower on the priority because you can go, you know, three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without oxygen. But I think there's an extra layer there. Because before you get to all of those You're not going to survive more than three seconds without a seed of hope. Hope is the number one thing that we need in order to get up out of the morning and to make something out of our lives and go and do something. And if we don't have hope, it's not good. Here's some of the the seeds of hope that we see throughout this scripture. I'm going to start at the end and work my way backwards. The very last verse I read ends with, they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You know what? She's going to have something to eat. Because in Israel, they had this sort of, their version of the welfare program was when you farmed the fields, you don't farm all of your fields and you allow some of it in the field so that the orphans and the widows and the poor could go behind and at the very least, they can gather up some grain and they can go home and they're not going to starve to death. The harvest had just begun. There are, there's food in the fields. And I know it might not seem like much of a seed of hope to say, well, well, at least she's got some food. You know what Judah didn't have for the past 10 years in this story? Food. So for her, that was a seed of hope. Knowing that she was going somewhere and she could at the very least have a full belly, so if, you, if you're in a situation, and some of you might be, 
where you feel like the hand of the Lord is against you and you feel like your hope is gone, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go to your freezer. I want you to open it up. And I want you to pull out those those black bananas that I know you have in there because you've been planning on making banana bread. I know they're in there. Marie says, no. If you don't have that, then I want you to go back to your cupboard and I want you to dig through your cans and I want you to find that Campbell's cream of mushroom soup that I guarantee you is in there. Okay, there's got one. And there's that, that can of green beans from like five years ago. It's still good, I promise. And I want you to say to yourself, you know what? Life sucks right now, but I might make me some banana bread. This is a rough situation, but I'm going to... I got supper tonight. I got my green beans and my cream of mushroom soup, and I got something to eat tonight. It's little things. That's hope. Number two, I want you to pay attention to the people who are in your life and are willing to be there for you. Naomi was going into the region of Judah alone, and Ruth said, no, 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 I'm going to go with you. She said, where you go, I will go. And my loyalty is with you right up until the end. And so when you're in those hopeless situations, I want you to write down a list of three people that you know you could call and and rely on anytime in a dark situation. And I guarantee you have those people in your life. And the reason I can guarantee that is because they're in this room right now. At the bare minimum, if you look around at the people in this room, I will answer the phone and anybody else in this church, I guarantee you will. So I've got right now one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's ten adults in here, four kids. Uh, I don't always rely on my kids too much. Sometimes they're needy, but... There's 10 adults in this, in this building right now that you can rely on. You have 10 different Ruths in your life. Baseline. Number three, and I think this is the biggest one. I want you to understand that God notices you. They decided to return home because God had shown concern for his people, reversing the famine and providing abundant crops. Even when it feels like he doesn't see you, even when he feels like you're alone, even when it feels like you've got nothing, I want you to know that he notices you and your pain and your grief and your suffering and your stress and your anxiety. He doesn't always step in and fix everything. There's some days I wish he would. But in his infinite wisdom and his infinite knowledge, we have to face the fact that God doesn't always just step in and fix everything in our lives, but he gives us hope in the fact that he sees you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows when you lie down. He knows when you get up. He knows when you go to the bathroom. He knows when you're in pain. He knows when you're joyful. He literally knit you together. I guess not literally. He figuratively. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He was there for your first words, your first steps, your first heartbreak, your first loss. And he's with us now. And I don't honestly know 
In this first chapter of Ruth, if Naomi recognized all the little seeds of hope that she had, it kind of seems like she didn't. It kind of seems like God was planting seeds of hope in her life, and she had her blinders up, and she wasn't seeing it. And I don't know who needs to hear this right now. You might need to hear it now, and if, if you do, I want you to listen up. And if you don't need to hear it now, I want you to tuck this away in your back pocket because you're going to need it at some point. In our hopeless situations, we have seeds of hope planted in our life, sometimes in just the little things, in the barley harvest that's just begun. We've got food. We've got something. In, in the people who are in our life that we can say, you know what, at the very least I can give so-and-so a call. And I want you to find hope in the fact that God sees you every step of the way. In your darkest days, the book of John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ is our hope. Jesus is the one who God sent. He fulfilled all of the covenants, all of the promises. Jesus Christ came. He defeated death. He, he made a way so that we can be with God forever. And that's good news. That gives me hope. We're going to see a lot more of how God acts in our life as we go through the book of Ruth. But from this first chapter, I want you to understand that there is hope in the darkness. Will you pray with me? Father, you are our hope. You are our salvation. You are our Lord. Father, we don't have anything to bring to the table in this relationship. We don't have everything, anything to give you. We don't have anything that you can't already come up with on your own. We understand that this is a one-sided relationship where everything good flows from you, from above. And so we just want to take this moment to say thank you. We ask that you would... Help us to lean on you in our times of trouble. And we ask that you would help us to recognize one another and the family and the brothers and sisters in Christ that we have to lean on. God, I just ask that you would... I'm not even going to ask for you to plant seeds of hope because, God, you're already doing it. I ask that you would open our eyes so we can see them. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this church. And we thank you for your written word. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.